So today we're looking at just the first five verses of um, chapter 1 of Malachi. Before, we'll get to that in a moment though, I just want to sort of set the scene a bit uh, before I read that. Many of you who are regulars here will know that one of my hobbies uh, is rowing. And I've just begun my third season uh, at a local club. And to be honest, just between you and me and the millions who uh, watch and listen to our sermons on YouTube and so on, <coughs> it's starting to feel a bit old. First two seasons, I was absolutely mustard keen. Okay? I was full of enthusiasm, full of energy, was making good progress and so on. Felt I was getting somewhere, I was enjoying it, I couldn't wait to get out on the water. But now the, the past few weeks, since the restart after the summer... It's just felt a little bit, meh, I think is what people say. It's just like, ah, heart's just not in it anymore. Um, you know, I'm not sure I can be bothered with it anymore. Sort of getting up early and just trying to row faster and getting your split times down and so on. It feels like a little bit like I'm going through the motions. And it feels like I've sort of plateaued or maybe even going backwards. Kind of, when you're rowing, you're going backwards anyway, but you know what I mean. It's a... <laughs> Sometimes it can feel like that spiritually in the Christian life. And that is a lot more serious. There are times when we may feel spiritually, as I felt recently with the rowing, that we feel weary with it. We feel maybe a bit disillusioned. We're weary, weary with being Christian. We feel, I'm not sure I can be bothered with this anymore. It's just, it's same old, same old. Maybe getting up early to read the Bible and praying and getting to church, maybe serving at church in some way. And you just feel, you know, I'm going through the motions and my heart's not really in it as it once was. And we start to wonder, is it really worth being a Christian after all? I wonder if you've ever felt like that spiritually. Uh, Maybe you feel like that now. If not, it may happen at some point down the track. Where do we turn for help at such times? Well, the book of Malachi is good medicine for Christians who are feeling weary, spiritually, and disillusioned, because that is exactly how God's people felt back then. And this book was written to them to speak into that situation to help them and to help us. The prophet who wrote it down uh, was this guy called Malachi. We don't know anything else about him. The introductory line, the first line of the book says, uh, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Uh, The most recent arrival at the Barge Church is uh, baby Micah, so born last week to Adrian and Helen. Well, Malachi is another of the so-called minor prophets. There are 12 of them. And they're minor not because they're unimportant, but because they're short, as in their books are short. Uh, Malachi is just 55 verses. Last Old Testament book in the English Bibles, uh, not in the Hebrew original there. And you'll see there in verse 1 he was writing to Israel. Now, of course, um, the country of Israel had been dominating the news this past week. Uh, but this was long, long before that. This was, um, so Israel was the name of God's Old Testament covenant people. When Malachi was writing, all that was left of Israel was the people of Judah, they're referred to in 2.11 and 3.4, and just a little remnant of them. Uh, this was 
first half of the 5th century B.C. Uh, we're talking somewhere between 500 and 450. And in your service sheet, there's another little um, insert that says Malachi timeline on one side. I thought this might be helpful just so we can get our bearings here in terms of where we're talking. So Abraham, if you're on the Malachi timeline side, uh, about 2000 B.C., Abraham, God made promises to him. King David, about 1000 B.C., um, then under Solomon, his son, the land split into, into two, into Israel and Judah. 72, northern kingdom of Israel, defeated by the Assyrians, people taken into exile. 586, the southern kingdom of Judah was defeated by the Babylonians and taken into exile. Then the Persians took, then the Persians took over. And in 539 BC, there was this Persian king Cyrus, and he decreed that the people of Judah should return home to their land. And that is what they did. And in 515 BC, the temple was rebuilt. Now, Malachi is writing probably just a few decades after that. So that's just to sort of situate ourselves in a timeline. Uh, Now, that all may feel a bit historical, remote, you know, what, what has a book written to people two and a half thousand years ago got to do with us today? But you've already seen that we face similar spiritual challenges to the ones they did. And most importantly, verse 1 says, this is the word of the Lord. So because this is God's word, it endures forever. Through it, God, by his spirit, he speaks to us today as well, here on the barge, as we read this with our New Testament specs on. But, here's a warning, it may prove uncomfortable listening. God's word brings encouragement, also brings warning. It brings good news, also brings bad news. It speaks of salvation, also speaks of judgment. And that is suggested by this term oracle in verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord. The word oracle can also be translated burden. Burden, and that's how it's translated in, I think I put it in the footnotes in the service sheet, Zechariah 9.1, 12.1. Burden in the sense of a message that is heavy, you know, burdensome. This little book contains things that the prophet found it hard to deliver, and the people found it hard to hear, and we may well do as well. But it is for our spiritual good, it is for our salvation. So today we're just looking at the first five verses, let me read them now to us. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we're shattered, but we'll rebuild the ruins... The Lord of hosts says, they they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The book starts with this declaration by God and what a declaration to begin with. Verse 2 I have loved you, says 
the Lord. Or you could translate it simply as, I love you. Uh, So in Hebrew, the perfect can be translated by the present tense. So God isn't saying here that he used to love them, but he doesn't any longer. No, rather he's saying that he has loved them over many, many years, and he still loves them today. God loved his covenant people from the very beginning. So on that timeline, when he called Abraham, he made promises to him. He then repeated these promises to Isaac, to Jacob. He delivered his people from Egypt. He made that covenant with them at Sinai. He gave them the promised land. So God had loved his people faithfully down the centuries, all the way to Malachi's day. Psalm 136, our first reading. It traced that history. And the repeated refrain was what? His steadfast love endures forever. I have loved you, says the Lord. There is a popular misconception that the Old Testament is about a God of judgment and the New Testament is about a God of love. It's nonsense. When you fact check it, it's nonsense. God's love is central to the Old Testament. Justice and judgment as well, but it's exactly the same in the New Testament. I have loved you, says the Lord. And what he said to his Old Testament people back then, he says to us today as his New Testament people, I have loved you. I do love you still. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? That the everlasting God, the creator of everything, he loves us. Someone wrote... That God loves us is undoubtedly one of the hardest truths to grasp. And it is, isn't it? You see, at one level, God loves everyone. He loves the whole world. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But God has a special, he has a particular love for his people. So just as I am called to love everybody, but I have a special love my wife, for my children. So God has a special love for his bride, for his children. And that is a source of wonder in the Bible. So John, the Apostle John, marvels at it in 1 John 3, 1. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Coming to church today, what message... From God, did you feel you most needed to hear? Did you expect this one? I love you, says God. Why does the book of Malachi begin with this? Well, partly because it's foundational to everything. It's something we desperately need to hear, be convinced of, take to heart. The French author Victor Hugo wrote... The greatest happiness of life is the conviction that we are loved. Being loved is a, it's a precious thing, but it's a rare thing as well, isn't it? How many people throughout your life, how many people have ever said to you, I love you? Wouldn't be many, would it? Maybe, maybe your parents, 
uh, a brother, a sister, maybe a child, your spouse, your best friend. I mean, like a jewel, it's precious and it's also rare. But what a difference it makes to know that we are loved. Well, how much more so to know that we are loved by God himself. I love you, says the Lord. What security, what stability that gives us. What comfort, what hope. But at times we may doubt it, as the people did back then, which brings us to our second point, which is questioning. So verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And the tone there is, is dismissive, it's sceptical, it's sort of, the sense is, pa, yeah, right, you know, sure you have. See, the, the people are questioning this declaration of love by the Lord. They don't believe it. This, uh, this structure is going to be a pattern through the book. That basically, the Lord makes a statement, the people question it, the Lord then responds. And I put on the, uh, the other side of the little insert there, uh, to Malachi timeline, Malachi structure. So that's the structure of the book. The book is structured around six of these dialogues, you'll see, these disputes. Don't worry about all the detail now, but take that home and stick it in your Bibles. So in this first one, the Lord affirms his love for his people, and his people push back. But why? So why were they questioning God's love for them? What was going on? Now, if we can understand that, it might help us to see why we might be tempted at times to question God's love for us. Here's a bit of the backstory. Earlier prophets had foretold, not just the exile, but they'd foretold a return from the exile. And the return that they foretold in their prophecies was the beginning of a glorious new age. It would be a time of blessing, of expansion, of peace, the return of God's presence, the nations being drawn in, the messianic kingdom coming in all its fullness. And so when they had this uh, return from exile decreed by King Cyrus, the people came back to the land. You can imagine how they would have felt. They were full of optimism, full of hope. The prophecies had begun to be fulfilled. The new age was about to begin. God loves us. And so they arrived home. And they set about rebuilding the temple, which had been destroyed, and temple worship began again. But as the years passed, the promised new age of blessing just didn't seem to materialize. There seemed to be this gulf between what God had promised and what they were experiencing. So Judah remained a a relatively insignificant province of the mighty Persian Empire. There was no Davidic king on the throne. The temple was unimpressive. The land was small. They were suffering from pests and plagues. Where was the evidence of God's presence? Where was the evidence of his blessing? And so the people had become disillusioned. They'd become discouraged. They were thinking and saying, well, so much for God loving us. Yeah, I don't see much sign of that. And we'll see as we go through the book that uh, spiritually, they were now just going through the motions They couldn't see the point anymore of of serving God. Uh, They they still went to the temple. They still carried out their religious duties. But their heart wasn't in it. And in their daily lives, they were now just living 
as they saw fit, not pleasing God, not obeying His commands. So there's a, a really important lesson here for us, and it's this. That it is at times when life is not working out as we had hoped, at times when we feel disappointed, it is then that we will be tempted to doubt God's love for us and become spiritually disillusioned. Back in my uh, 20s, and my single days, I lived with some fantastic guys, some Christian friends, um, in a house in Stockwell, the Wilkinson Street Boys, we were called. And uh, last Tuesday, one of them died of a heart attack. It's a massive shock, just out of the blue, devastating for his poor wife and children. Bereavement is a time when we'll be tempted to doubt God's love. And we say, why did God allow this to happen? You know, why now? Why like this? And all of us will face this at some point, the death of loved ones. Or we may struggle with poor health ourselves whether that's physically or mentally, uh, maybe a chronic condition. And we wonder, why doesn't God heal me? Why doesn't he answer my prayers? We may find we, may, we hit middle age, and our personal life, or maybe our professional life, it just hasn't worked out as we'd expected, as we'd hoped and dreamed. And we're tempted to feel, God hasn't come through for me. Yeah, he hasn't delivered. We may feel disillusioned that uh, we just don't seem to have made much spiritual progress and we're still struggling with the same old sins. And we read in the Bible God saying, I love you, but we feel, how have you loved me? You know, where's the evidence? I don't see it. Sometimes in marriage, a wife might say to her husband, you say, I love you. you say I love you, but I don't see it. Yeah? I, I don't see it in how you treat me. You know, where's the evidence? And so the people of God here were pushing back. They were questioning their heavenly husband. They were questioning his love for them. And his response is the rest of the passage. The Lord lays out the evidence. Verse 2. Is not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. To which our response is, huh? (laughs) That is not the response I was expecting. What is going on here? Jacob, Esau, love and hate. Does God have sort of love and hate tattooed on his knuckles? I was going to do this today as an illustration, we've got to do it. But does he have it tattooed on his knuckles? What is going on here? Basically, the Lord is saying here, There is a massive difference between how I see you and treat you as my people versus those who are not my people. There is a massive difference, a gulf. And he proves this by taking us back to two brothers, Jacob and Esau. He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? The story is told back in Genesis 25. Abraham, you'll remember, was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And God treated the two of them and their descendants very, very differently. Verse 2 here, 
Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. Let's take Jacob first. I've loved Jacob. God loved Jacob by choosing him. So God chose to bless him and his descendants rather than Esau and his descendants. So the promises of land and blessing which God had made to Abraham were passed on to Jacob, not to Esau. God loved and chose Jacob and his descendants, the people of Israel. Um, Israel, you may remember, was the name God gave to Jacob. And his twelve sons were the twelve tribes of Israel. So Jacob and his descendants, they were the objects of God's special love. Why? Why did God choose to love Jacob and his descendants and not Esau? No reasons given. So it wasn't that Jacob had some natural right. In fact, Esau was the older son, the firstborn. It wasn't that Jacob was better. In fact, he was a deceitful schemer when you read the story. It was purely God's sovereign choice. So Romans 9, 11 to 13 says that even before these boys were born, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works. Later, Moses would say to Jacob's descendants, the people of Israel, this is in Deuteronomy 7, he would say to them, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. So he loved them because he loved them. That was his sovereign choice. And what was true then is true of God's people today. That God has set his love on them, he has chosen them, and that is an immense privilege, an immense blessing, not because they're better than other people, but purely because of his sovereign choice. But who are this chosen people? Loved by God. Is it still the physical descendants of Jacob? Are the Jews the chosen race? Is Israel today God's special nation? The Jews still have a special place in God's heart. They are, Romans 11.28 says, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. The Christian tree has Jewish roots. The Old Testament is Jewish. Jesus was a Jew. The gospel is for the Jews first. And at the end of history, Romans tells us, many, many Jews will turn to Christ. But, when 1 Peter 2.9 says, you are a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Who's he talking about? Who is the you? Well, Peter's writing to Christians, followers of Jesus. So the chosen race now, the people of God, is not the Jews. The holy nation is not Israel. It's believers in Jesus, Jews and Gentiles, scattered throughout the world. They are the people loved and chosen by God. So if we believe in Jesus, at times when we are tempted to doubt God's love, we need to remember how blessed we are. 
God has chosen us. God has set his love on us in Christ. Why you? Why me? We don't know. Not for any merit in us. Which is humbling, isn't it? But it gives us a lot of security. Because if God chose us because we were better than other people, we'd be constantly worried, wouldn't we, about our performance? You know, Will God stop loving me if I don't keep making the grade? Those kind of questions. If God chose us because, morally speaking, we were more attractive than other people, we'd constantly be worried about our looks, morally speaking. You know, will God stop loving me if I stop lo- looking as nice as I used to? But his love, his choice are independent of any good in us. He loved us because he loved us. And that means security. And he loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And so with the Apostle Paul, we marvel and we say, in Galatians 2, the Son of God loved me and he gave himself for me. If we believe in Jesus... God says to us, I love you. But then you get bad news from the doctor, or you lose your job, or a relationship breaks up, and you say, how have you loved me? And he replies, I've chosen you to be one of my people. I've sent my son to die for you. What if God hasn't chosen me? Uh, Sometimes people worry about that. They say, what if I'm not chosen? If you come to Jesus, he will never turn you away. Jesus said that in John 6, 37. He said, all that the Father has given me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. To be part of God's people is the most amazing blessing. The alternative is frightening. So verse 2 back in Malachi, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. In what way did God hate Esau? Well, he didn't choose him. He didn't set his love on him. He rejected him. To not be chosen, to not be loved by God, is to be hated by him. That was the fate of Esau and the fate of his descendants. Uh, His descendants were the people of Edom. So God didn't choose to set his his love on them, and instead, they suffered his judgment. God God was against them. God would destroy them. So verse 3, I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. That happened historically. So Edom was, uh, was overrun in the end by the Nabataeans, they were called. Uh, they were invaders from the desert, these jackals of the desert. But this was God's doing. So God says, I laid waste his hill country. God did it. And nothing could stop this decree of destruction from God. So verse 4, if Edom says, oh, we're shattered, but we'll rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I'll tear down. And they'll be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. To have God against you is a very, very scary thing. In the end, there are just these two peoples. There are the people whom God has chosen and set his love on to bless, and there are the people with whom... This is a chilling phrase, isn't it? With whom he is angry forever. And he will judge and destroy. So God is not some sort of big softy in the sky. He doesn't mess about when it comes to dealing, dealing with his enemies. 
But who are his enemies? So are his enemies the physical descendants of Esau today? Well, the Bible says no. It's all those who don't believe in Jesus. And so if that's you, you need to switch sides pretty quickly, without delay. Don't sort of dilly-dally thinking, oh, well, you know, maybe I'm not chosen. Come to God through Jesus. He will never turn you away. Now, we may feel, this is a little bit unfair, isn't it? You know, I mean, poor Esau. It wasn't his fault. God just didn't choose to love him, so he was hated, he was judged. Poor guy. But Esau and his descendants were rightly judged for their sins. The Edomites, when you read the Old Testament history, they became the enemies of God's people. They refused to let Israel pass through their territory on their way to the Promised Land. They were at war with Israel in the days of Saul. When the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem, the Edomites, they helped the invading Babylonians. They cut off the escape routes of the people trying to flee the city. They looted the city. They rejoiced in the downfall of Jerusalem. And the book of Obadiah gives details. So they got the judgment they deserved for their sins. As will all God's enemies. So think of it this way. As, as a human race, we have all turned against God. We've all gone our own way. The Bible says all have sinned. We are all rightly under his judgment. If God, in his mercy, chooses to set his love on some, to bless them, and to save them, that is a wonderful, undeserved bonus for them. But he is not wrong to judge the rest. And he invites all to come to Christ and to flee the coming wrath. As John 3.36 puts it, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so if by grace we are part of the chosen people, on whom God has set his love in Christ. That is something for which we should be full of thanksgiving today. We are very blessed. And at times when we're we're tempted to doubt God's love because of life not working out as we hoped, take a look over the fence. Take a look over the fence, look over the border, and reflect on the fate of the rest. So verse 5. Your own eyes shall see this, that is the judgment, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. That is, the Lord is great. He's awesome in judgment. This whole, the world is under his judgment. The day of wrath is coming when all his enemies, spiritual, physical, will be overthrown, but his people will be saved. What a privilege it is to be part of his people, to be loved by God. Let's not take that for granted. Sometimes we may find ourselves grumbling about life in this country. I don't know if you ever do that. Uh, The leadership here, maybe, the economy, public services, the weather, all the rest of it. And then you sit down and you listen to an asylum seeker telling you about life in their country that they fled from. Or we see these apocalyptic scenes unfolding in Gaza. And the contrast, it wakes us up, doesn't it? And it brings home to us how immensely fortunate we are, how immensely blessed that we live here and we're citizens of this country. Well, how much more blessed we are to be those chosen and loved by God. 
if that is us today. I've loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Let's pause to reflect on what we've heard, and then we're going to continue in prayer together.